0: If you're wondering, yes, we are still in Psalm 8. As we've done before, I'd like to begin by reading the psalm. Psalm 8, verses 1 through 9. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth! You have set your glory above the heavens, from the lips of Of children and infants, you have ordained praise because of your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him, the Son of Man that you care for him? Yet you made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler. Over the works of your hands, you put everything under his feet, all flocks and herds, and the beasts of the field, and the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Father, I want to lift your name this morning, Lord. I want us to see the majesty of it. Above your creation, Lord, is your glory, and you have uh, ordained praise, Lord, from little children. You are the great creator, Lord. You are the one who needs to be exalted. I pray that the Holy Spirit will lead us, Lord, that we will feast on your word, that we will discuss your word, Lord, that we will see uh, you in a deeper way. I thank you that we have this time together to fellowship, and I thank you for our salvation through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. So we have uh, spent a little time in this uh, psalm, and I don't think we're going to finish today. <laughs> uh, that's okay. We, you know, we came at it first in rapid fire. We read through it. We we got the main points. We got the basic tenor of the psalm, and then we took a little time to walk through it, and we and we observed some of the words that were in it, and we. Focused on some of the meanings and the phrases and the application, kind of. But now uh, we are in that part where we're going to go. We w- we're going to go a little deeper. We're looking to see some themes of God's word that are expressed uh, in this psalm, elsewhere, but also in this psalm. And so that's where we are. Last week we started with the first verse uh, of Psalm 8, and it's just our O Lord, our Lord. How majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory above the heavens. And we discussed the fact that we don't really see the world upholding God's name, His majesty, His royalty, and His his dignity. All that He is, it's not really what we see. It's more or less brushed aside these days. And our culture's not really uh, in the mode of lifting God up. We we don't like that, but that's the way it is. We, We actually live in a time where Many people don't even give uh, uh, acknowledgement of, of, of the existence of God, and that's where we've come. Now, when we looked at that, it led us right on in to Romans chapter 1. It seems to be very relevant, I think, for the days in which we live, and uh, I'm always drawn to these uh, verses, especially uh, 18 toward and uh, to the end of the chapter. And I chose especially this NAS translation. Normally I read this; these first two verses, uh, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. And I think that we see evidence coming to people and from within people, and I didn't pick up, uh, some of the translations don't uh, give us that uh, uh, bit of information so, so, so clearly. And we were discussing this, and, and uh, the point that we have essentially two evidence given to us, two evidences, and they're part of what many consider a general revelation about, about knowing God. And we see two sources, evident within. Evident too from without, and I would call that creation for sure. But within, I think we're talking about something else that is also addressed in uh, uh, Romans, and I think it's having to do with the law, God's law, written in the human heart. So that's what I'm talking about, and that's where we ended last time. We were just about to pick up uh, this uh, point. So I'm talking about then what's termed the conscience, or that internal value system. And Paul is telling us here in Romans chapter 2 that God put one in everybody. Let me read uh, the verses, Romans chapter 2, 12 through 15. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when the Gentiles, the pagans, who do not have the law, instinctively perform the requirements of the law, these, though not having the law, are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience testifying, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. The law uh, stated here in the, with the capital L, it's speaking of the Mosaic law. It's speaking, it's speaking of the, the written law that was given by God to Moses on Mount Sinai. And it's stating that, you know, with or without that, we're all under sin because the evidence is that of sin is the wages and, and all perish with or without the law. But it's also saying that Gentiles who were never given the law well, they, they're not always all the time bad, are we? Uh, you know, they can attempt to do things, right? There's something about them that wants to uh, instinctively perform the requirements of the law, not incompletely, not completely, but to try. And they, in doing that, they're evidence of a law that God has written on the human heart. And so this is what we, we call the conscience. The conscience is the non-physical part of a person that causes mental anguish and guilt when we violate it, and feelings of well-being when our behavior and our actions conform to it. It must be based on some value system, or better stated, somebody's value system. The Greek word for conscience means moral awareness or moral consciousness. The conscience, it reacts to our actions, our thoughts, our words, it can do this either positively or negatively. And it's according to a standard of right and wrong. So every honest person has to ask themselves, who put this standard of right and wrong in my thinking? God says, he made us this way. Now, in this passage in Romans, we can find out a couple of things about our consciences and, by extension, our hearts. First... Concerning the law written in the human heart and the conscience, these are the God-given capacity that humans have to exercise self-evaluation. Paul referred to this regarding his own conscience at various times in his life. One example of that is found in Acts chapter 23, verse 1. This is a, a time when Paul was being held by the Romans, and a Roman commander finds out that he's a, a Roman citizen, and he, and he stops their questioning and takes Paul before the Sanhedrin. That's where I'll pick it up, Acts 23.1. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, "'Brothers, I have lived my life before God "'in all good conscience up to this day.'" Now, what, what immediately follows is he's struck in the face, but he had a clear conscience He had done a self-evaluation to that point, and his conscience was clear with where he stood and what he had been doing. Second, the conscience is portrayed as a witness, just like in a court of law. It can testify for you, or it can testify against you. Now, in these verses in Romans, Paul states that the Gentiles have consciences that give testimony to the fact of the law on their hearts. Now, the Gentiles, I believe they're singled out from the Jews only because the Jews had been given the written law, the written Mosaic law, not because Jews don't have a conscience. Later in Romans chapter 9, Paul uh, is addressing the current state of Israel's blindness with regard to the gospel, and he speaks of the witness of his own conscience when he's writing this. He says in uh, Romans 9 verse 1, I'm speaking the truth in Christ, says Paul, I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. So he's called on a witness for his testimony. Basically, he's got two witnesses, his conscience and the Holy Spirit, which is evidence that would stand up in a court. So here's a question. What happens when we don't listen to the testimony or the witness of our conscience, when we allow the distractions and the diversions of the world to block out what we would otherwise know as truth? Then a real problem arises when people continuously disregard the witness of their consciences. Your conscience fades away, says Dan. I agree. Linnell says your conscience, 1 Timothy 4, your conscience can be seared. It can be seared. In surgery, we we would call that cauterized. You take a little electrode and you you bleb out the, the bleeding vessel and it's and it's scar tissue. And when that happens with your conscience, the function it doesn't function the way God intended anymore. That's not a good a good place to be. Yes. Right. As we're in the Word, as we're interacting with the Word, as we're praying with the Lord, those come into uh, to sharper focus. And we're like, oh, yeah, it's not, oh, did God really say, you know, oh, God said this? Right. So the further we get from the Word, the more easily our conscience can get seared, the more easily we can uh, become clouded with regard to certain issues. The closer we stay the Word, the the closer we get to black and white reality. Very good. It sure does right that that 's the peril of a seared conscience. Rob says, if you continue through Romans one you 're going to find that that 's not a good place to be a seared conscience because God can give you over, he can just remove his protection he can remove he can allow us to have everything we want, and it is not good, okay when he turns us over so what i 've done is uh, I got I, I I've gotten two representative statements, okay. And then I found these. They're from evolutionists, and uh, they're very much in alignment with the generally ac- accepted narrative uh, of those who speak for the scientific community. Okay. Uh, comments like these they're not uncommon among the educated elite who have fallen for the lie of evolution. The first one is from a Dr. Scott Todd, and it's a remark which. I find rather absurd, and I think it's really an example of what we call circular reasoning. Let me first just read the slide out loud, and then I'll discuss these. We'll discuss the statement. So the majority narrative of the scientific community, Uh, Dr. uh, Scott Todd, and he's an immunologist, uh, immunologist at Kansas State University. He wrote, even if all the data point to an intelligent designer, such a hypothesis is excluded from science because it is not naturalistic. And then Richard Dawkins, he's he's pretty well known uh, celebrity among atheists. He's a very aggressively anti-God atheist. Uh, His education is in biology. He writes eloquently for us here that biology is the study of complicated things that give the appearance of having been designed for a purpose, the appearance of having been designed for a purpose. So let me start with Dr. Todd. Circular reasoning. Let me give you an example. It's like saying 18-year-olds have the right to vote because it's legal for 18-year-olds to vote. You know, you're using one unproven statement to support another. Jesus, I think, understood this kind of thinking when He referred to the Pharisees. In Matthew 15, 14, He said, let them alone, speaking of the Pharisees. They are the blind guides of the blind, and if a blind man guides a blind man, both will fall into a pit. Now let's look at Dr. Todd's statement. He says, even if all the data, not some of the data, all of the data, point to an intelligent designer, that's a code word for supernatural God of the Bible, the God of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the, you know, the creator of all, such a hypothesis is, hypothesis is excluded from science because he's the gatekeeper, you understand, because it's not naturalistic. For something that's not naturalistic, it is supernatural. So what he' said is, even if all the data to, point to a supernatural God, such an idea is excluded from science because it's supernatural. That's what he said. So there's no evidence to back that. In fact, it's very close-minded. Concerning the statement from Richard Dawkins, yes. Right. These are, these are the, the little tricks and curves and, and swirls you have to do through the Word of God in order to maintain your focus on no God. Yeah. And it starts to show up in the absurdity of the statements that you make. So, uh, Richard Dawkins here, he says, um, oh, let's see, I, th- I think he demonstrates for us the extent to which someone will go to avoid responsibility to God, even someone who's considered highly intelligent his foolish sounding remark becomes necessary to support the false theory of evolution. Now, I looked up the word complicated, and it means composed of elaborately interconnected parts, complex, such as a complicated apparatus for measuring brain functions, difficult to analyze, difficult to understand, or difficult to explain. I mean, all I can say is at least he admits that biological things complicated. Yet by doing so, he creates, at least for me, a dilemma. What do I mean he causes a dilemma? <laughs> well, let me just read the slide and kind of go over. I, this is me scratching my head, and I am looking. look any, that's a very unflattering picture of Richard Dawkins, by the way, but he, he was on the BBC and he was ridiculing anybody who didn't believe evolution because it's so plain and clear. Now, I'm wondering, like this guy, is, this, is Dawkins, is he a fool, as, as they say in Psalm 14 and 15, the fool has said in his heart, no, uh, no God? Or is he purposely ignorant, like we just read in Romans 1, 18 and 19? Or maybe both. Now, I threw in a little snarky uh, remark down below here, I, you know, just in case. If he wanted to deny the existence of Leonardo da Vinci, would he write something like, uh, the Mona Lisa gives the appearance of having been painted by an artist. I don't know. I thought it was pretty similar. Um, so is he a fool, or is he purposely uh, suppressing the truth and unrighteousness? So why is the Easter Bunny up there? He in the Easter Bunny? Hang on. <laughs> I, I, I knew the PhD would get me. <laughs> Nobody's even supposed to have noticed that yet. All right, let me just finish with Richard uh, Dawkins. On the one hand, Okay, I've got to ask, who would but a fool would write some of the things uh, and say some of the things that he has put forth? I'm gonna, I want you to listen to this following litany of vitriol from his book, The God Delusion, and please, these are his words, not mine. Okay. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction, jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving, control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, philicidal, meaning a father that kills their son, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. I can't even believe I got through that. But do you think that he's, you know, covered enough of the woke terms of our culture to endear himself to the world. And I believe, ultimately, that's his audience he plays to. Now, by the way, the Hebrew word for fool in Psalms 14 and 53 is Nabal. Nabal, N-A-B-A-L. Maybe you remember that. Just like the guy who was married to Abigail. And you might remember his dealings with King David. And this word has been variously translated as senseless, silly, insane or a madman. Next, on the other hand, Richard Dawkins must be intelligent. He is intelligent. Well, there's a lack of substance there. <laughs> so you do the best with what you have. So he is intelligent. This man holds a master's degree and two doctoral degrees from the University of Oxford, no less. So this is the quandary. What, which kind of fool is he? And I think that the answer uh, is that he really is. If we kept going in Romans 1, as Rob uh, is looking, uh, we would find the answer to this question. In Romans 1, verses 21 and 22, it says, For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him. But their thinking became futile, And their foolish foolish hearts were darkened, that is, became darker. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools, possibly indicating that what began as just suppression of the truth has progressed to insanity. I mean, I don't know. Any thoughts on that? So he sees a double-sided coin here, hatred of God. And what was the other? Uh, love, of self. love of self. Okay, they just go together. And, you know, our, our, our thinking in the world would, would not inhibit that at all from happening. Noah? Noah? John Lennox, I've watched it. Yeah, don't ever debate John Lennox, by the way, if you're an atheist. Uh, he's, got, he's got a couple of doctorates himself and he's a, uh, a Northern Irishman and he can hold his own with Dawkins or anybody. Very intellectual fellow. I, I highly recommended, uh, recommend some of his uh, works. Um, yeah, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's almost, it's inconsistent to say the least. You know, and, it, and he draws upon morality at some level, but you can't do that you, if you've no standard. You can't claim uh, that your, your way is right. You've nothing, no authority to do that without, uh, you know, it, admitting that... Is his attributes and his character, and so in the absence and in the insistence of removing God out of our life, that that created capacity continues to exist. Only now, right. it's feeding off of the world and it's feeding off of, off of demonic things. Right, Lugy points up the hypocrisy and all of that, and you can't, you just can't get away from it because ultimately God's truth is going to shine through. And you know, anyway, we 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 end up with with a. Uh, A very aggressive uh, hatred of God, and it's done uh, as a uh, just uh, uh, his purpose in life, essentially. So, Jim. Yes. I think it's interesting that they go to so much trouble trying to deny someone who does not exist. You want to come finish the lecture? Anne? Suppressing the truth is evil. Right. right and it's step by step it's step by step so you get in to the depravity. right it's is it's we acclimate to it. it we accommodate and and we go down in progression you're absolutely right. Is again what right all of it i mean that i mean i go to that very frequently just you know just so I'm make sure i'm i'm uh, keeping up with what's going on <laughs> Yes, the Easter Bunny is in the upper right corner of the slide. <laughs> Why is it there? That was to remind me that he too is a fictional character. But for some unknown reason, Richard Dawkins doesn't seem to have an aggressively uh, devoted life to making sure I don't believe in him. And it's just rather interesting. Um, any any other thoughts before we move on? You know, Jack, the whole irony of this. Is, if you go back to the previous slide. Uh huh. Despite observation. Yeah. Then, well, In the face. Can't be science, but science is based on right. And so the whole scientific method gets thrown out the window by these guys. That's those PhDs for you, though, Jim. So it seems. Yes. Rob. Yeah. in yet, Yes. So we know what that's like. Right. And, you know, you get a burr in your saddle, and you get angry. And he's got psychological problems. It's not just... Say attitude. You said at first, he does not have intellectual problems. Well, I'm not saying... You, no, I you know, I agree works, with you. But he's got an attitude problem. Right. So, you know... I, do you know enough about Todd to know... He's he a PhD. I don't. Okay, so I was going to say that it seems to me in Todd's But all he was saying was that for the sake of dis, disciplined science, we have to operate by the paradigm of, you know, this. Yes, but that's a false premise because evolution is not required in the discipline of science. But science is the observatory… You know, if I'm going to practice science and do research, yeah. I can't, like, in the background think, well, God might intervene and interrupt my, my scientific analysis. I have to assume that he's not going to do that. Otherwise, you know. I can't come Isaac Newton and all the original uh, uh, explorer uh, scientists that gave us all the basic knowledge that we have now had no problem with God intervening or not. And I I don't think it is a problem, but I think for the sake of the discipline, you can't just say, well, I don't know if God intervened in this experiment or not. The fundamental of the discipline is causality. Right. You can't go anywhere without causality. So we use that every day. Right. No. Science is not. We have observable science. There's observable science and historical science, okay? They're talking about, they try to insert historical science science with an unproven narrative. We basically work these, in research, it's done on observable science. It has to be observable and repeatable. And And evolution is not required in any form or fashion. OK, from, from that statement, um, well, I agree with your I agree with your opening statement that he has an intellectual problem, not a uh, he, he, well, he's got a actually he's got a sin problem. That's what it is. OK, it's a sin problem, not an intellectual problem. That's what J. Vernon McGee used to always say. McGee said, you know, he was a guy. He had a doctorate or two. And he said, there's you know anything that somebody can write. I can look at it long enough and, and understand the meaning. He said it's not above you know, his head it's the it's the sin problem where we don't want to face up to our our guilt which is there because of that conscience and deal with with the god who put it there that's it it's an avoidance well, it's still rob all these have problems, so their sin is it. that's because what intelligence would say that. you would think would not say that. right so is he he's down in the chap verse 21 and 22 of romans already Mm-hmm. But the people they're graduating in the last couple of generations of degrees, oh, you can the trash man is smarter you. than most of us okay. because he sees the reality of God and just what what of him. only an intellect can come up with stuff like that, and it's not intellectual. They're denying science. Right? No, but he has a following yeah. that, that 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 views Everybody him that you know. Right he he he's iconic in the in the so in the in the in the like-minded people of atheists. This says and don't want just not going to come around like a little dad. Yeah. Or self-love. Self-love. Right. Which is promoted. Okay. Very good. Well, uh, next week we're going to talk about uh, no. <laughs> no, okay, so now I've got up here, and of course I've chosen the amplified version. Uh, I want to go into this. This is a natural follow-up. This is a natural summarization of where we came to so far in the discussion, I would say. And it is supported by what we read in Psalm 8. Romans 1, verse 24. Ever since the creation of the world, His, God's, invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through His workmanship, This is the Amplified. It says, all His creation, the wonderful things that He has made, His handiwork, remember that, so that they who fail to believe and trust in Him are without excuse and without defense. Biblical theme number one. Okay, God, all of this, I think, has led to the biblical theme that I believe is present in Psalm 8, that God has made His existence evident to all. Everyone is held accountable to recognize that the world was created by God. So Psalm 8, along with a whole lot of other scriptures, reflects this very important theme. God emphasizes in His Word the fact that we are here and we're part of His creative work is not something that He has hidden from us. We are wired on the inside with a standard that motivates us to seek good over evil, even though we don't. And on the outside, our senses alert us to the beauty, the design, the majesty of the world, and the universe that surrounds us, even though it is currently under the curse of sin. And creation speaks God's very name. How majestic is thy name in all the earth. I don't think any believer would deny this. Now, and this is important, as Christians, we should never underestimate the need for evangelism, or should we let up on our support for missions. We've been given marching orders in places like Mark 16 and verse 15 from the lips of Christ. Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Having said that, God's word also makes it clear that in God's final judgment of unbelievers, no one will be able to claim innocence by reason of ignorance. The evidence of God's work surrounds us and demonstrates his attributes, his power and nature, and the conscience or capacity for moral awareness that he has placed in each person motivates people to seek to worship, that is to worship someone or something. The evidence for God, though, is undeniable. Any other comment? That would lead them to see that? Yes. Well, they deny the God of the Bible. They didn't, yes. That's great, and you've told me the whole story uh, about the Chinese girl, when she came to realize the Lord in a personal way. It wasn't really a total out of the blue thing for her. She'd known about Him some somehow, some way. You know, I've been hearing lately stories with Muslims too uh, coming to the Lord, and I don't know, but it has some. You know, I've heard about dreams. Last week, man, last week in the sermon. Okay, that's where I heard it. <laughs> but I've heard it elsewhere also. Okay, point one, I'd like to get in to the next verse. Psalm 8, verse 2. Psalm 8, verse 2. From the lips of children and infants, you have ordained praise because of your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. Praise from children because of God's enemies to silence the foe. Some translations use the term the enemy or the avenger. So what we notice first is that God has ordained praise for himself to come audibly from children and infants. To ordain is to establish by appointment, decree, or law. It is an edict. This means by God's authority. Children proudly praising God out loud. Whenever this occurs, prophecy is being fulfilled. Why do you suppose it was important that such praise come from children? What was the status of children in Jewish society, for instance? What would the Jewish rulers have thought about children? In the Mosaic law, children have no rights, period. They were lowly, simple. The psalmist says that a purpose of this praise was against God's enemies or because of them. It would anger them. It would shut their mouths and leave them speechless. We also read in the verse, your enemies, plural, is followed by the foe and the avenger, singular, with the definite article the. Let me ask, who are God's enemies? Romans 5.10 says, For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life? We were all enemies at one point. Unbelievers, lost in sin. What about the foe or enemy is found in some translations? The avenger. Who could that be? Satan. Satan. Satan, fallen angel, Satan. I mean, the avenger. You know, that word, what does that mean? Avenger is the one who takes vengeance. The word is clear. The word of God is clear. Who, who has that prerogative, right? God. When, say again. God alone takes vengeance. When you take vengeance, not only is your vengeance unjust, but you have usurped the position of God. That's his, that's his role, to take vengeance. And that's something that Satan loves to do, usurp God in any form or fashion. Okay, now let's read Matthew 21, verses 12 through 16. This is the first time, the first verse from this psalm that is quoted in the New Testament. Let me just read that. Uh, Matthew 21, 12 through 16, Jesus entered the temple, entered the temple courts and drove out Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants? You, Lord, have called forth your praise. Mm, What a picture. Self-preservation and hatred had truly blinded these religious rulers and scribes. You know, these were the very people who were considered learned and most knowledgeable regarding God's Word, His Scriptures. Shouldn't they have been the ones to recognize Jesus, especially by the miracles that he did, healing the blind and the lame? The Old Testament has numerous scriptures which foretold that the coming Messiah of Israel would heal all kinds of disabilities. Yes? Right. Right. And there's, what's the explanation for the fact that they would deny him in the face of all evidence pointing toward him? Self preservation. a lot like Dawkins and I mean, Yeah. They knew who he was. Yes. I think they knew exactly who he was, but they didn't want to lose their power. Right. Self preservation. You know, what will you suppress the truth for? This was their reason. Let's see. So even when the the religious religious rulers then, they saw the wonderful works that Jesus did, and rather than recognizing him as the Messiah, they became enraged that children were shouting praises to Jesus as the son of David, clearly a messianic title. So we need to stop here for a minute and just consider. I think that there are two groups present in this scene, in this passage, and that is apart from Jesus himself. They're the the Jewish religious uh, chief priests and the teachers on the one hand and the children in the temple courts on the other hand, and I believe that two opposing wisdoms are on display here. Ask yourself, which group was following the wisdom of the world and which group was following the wisdom of God? Which group was considered more noble, rich, more knowledgeable, strong, more highly esteemed, and even claimed the greatest honor according to the world? Uh, Which group was considered less significant, weaker, naive, unsophisticated, and even foolish by the world's estimation? So I'm sure you see where we're going with this. There's a difference between worldly or earthly wisdom and godly wisdom, or that wisdom that comes from above. James addresses this in the third chapter of of his uh, uh, book. James James 3, 13 through 17 says... But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial, and sincere. So when the religious rulers asked Jesus if he'd heard what the children were saying, what did they expect Jesus to do? Say it. Rebuke them. Shh. Be quiet. To do so would have denied uh, his title as Messiah, so he didn't do it. They wanted him to make them quiet, but I'll tell you, the the children weren't the ones who end up silenced. Also, and I think we should really not miss this, the significance of this quote from Psalm 8-2 would not have been lost on these Jewish religious elites. Jesus was not merely quoting an Old Testament scripture here, no. He was directing the the verse to and at them. These indignant rulers would have surely, surely understood what Jesus was saying about two very important matters, who they were and who he was. In all that transpired here in Matthew, God is beginning to demonstrate for us his principle regarding the foolish and the weak in contrast to the wise and strong things of the world. In another passage from Matthew, Jesus emphasizes this point again, that God's wisdom is not what worldly wisdom even expects, and he will expound further regarding children and childlike faith. Matthew 18, 1 through 4, At that time the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child to him and placed the child among them. And he said, Truly I tell you, Unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Let's start by considering the disciples' question. Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? How would you describe such a question? Ambitious, very ambitious, maybe even self-seeking, maybe covetous, Um, and what would it tell us about what they expected the kingdom to be? Maybe they meant something more like, how can I personally rise to a position of greatness or preference in your kingdom, which they expected would be one of prosperity and peace, Right. So what he does is give them a a, a living object lesson. Next, I think this is like stops them in their tracks. Uh, what Jesus tells them was probably not what they expected. God's wisdom and His ways do not conform to general expectations and the wisdom of the world. You know the phrase that Jesus used in verse three is, "Unless you change." Uh, it's variously translated depending on your version and to turn, turn from your sin, repent, or are converted. These terms are all all address faith. Jesus said their faith had to be childlike or they would not enter the kingdom of heaven. That is heaven itself. To the disciples, this would have been a radical departure from their expectations. In order to be a genuine believer, a person must abandon thoughts of their own greatness And take the lowly position of a child. This is radical. Rather than wondering how much God is going to reward our great faith and qualities, we should be acknowledging our own sinfulness and unworthiness. Jesus is not just our hope. He is our only hope. Except for Judas Iscariot, the disciples, I believe, did have true faith in Christ. But they're thinking needed to be converted to conform to God's kingdom. And I believe that true humility will follow later when they actually receive the indwelling Holy Spirit. Here Jesus is telling the disciples that the greatest in the kingdom is the one who humbles himself as a little child. This is probably a good time to stop. Uh, Jeff, will you close us in prayer, please?